Welcome back to the Foul Balls podcast for October 17th, 2017. And this is our first basketball podcast of the year, so that's very exciting. We're still going to be doing the football one on Wednesday, uh, coming out on Thursday for the weeks. And then we haven't really totally figured out what we're going to be doing with the basketball format or really how we're going to be talking about this in general. We have some ideas. Uh, If anybody has any suggestions or if they have questions for us, you could definitely message either of us on Twitter. Uh, My Twitter handle is at GEarenbergDFS. I am Greg Ehrenberg, the host. Matt Mazelman is my co-host. His Twitter handle is at PreachingSense. And people who listen to our baseball podcast probably already know that, and I assume that's a lot of the same people. Uh, So there's only two basketball games for opening night. So I think we'll talk about some kind of general strategy type stuff, which I know we're going to. I don't know why I need to pretend that we haven't already figured out what we're going to talk <laughs> about, because we did talk about this beforehand, but uh, maybe we could trick the listeners into thinking this is all just unplanned, unscripted. Uh, so we won't be talking about the games very much, because there's only two of them, and we'll just do a little bit of basketball, general DFS talk up top, and I think the way that we're planning on doing this for the year is we, we want this to be kind of quick hitting podcast. Like we don't want it to be too long. We want it to just be a thing where you can listen to it at work really quick or maybe at lunch or coming to or from work or, Oh, how about name more places, Greg, where people could listen to a podcast. Cause that's, that's always interesting. Uh, so we're hoping to keep this like 15, 20 minutes. Most nights just kind of going through the plays we like at each position. So Matt, I think you had a couple of things that you wanted to bring up. And then another thing people hadn't listened to yet is I did do a DFS 101 talk with Josh Lloyd from Basketball Monster. And you could listen to his podcast. I also recommend subscribing to that. His podcast is the Red Rock Basketball Podcast. You could also find that on Basketball Monster. You can find it on Twitter. It's on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much everywhere. So, Matt, what were some of the things that you thought we should bring up that Josh and I didn't cover on that podcast? Well, I think it's important to mention that you can also listen to the podcast while you're in the bathroom. You could listen to it at the gym. You could probably even listen to it while you're falling asleep. You could listen to it while you're sleeping, so you can just dream the podcast. I think we've covered a decent amount of ways you can listen to this episode and many other episodes, but maybe we should just keep listing all the different ways. Do you think that that's a good good way to start off the season? In the shower, I think. We... Yeah, in the shower, does that too. Count as, does that count as the bathroom? Uh, no, I didn't. So I didn't mean the shower. So yeah, that that's that's an important distinction for sure. Oh uh, yeah, it's very multidimensional. You could listen to it. While you take a shit. You could listen to it on in the shower if you like taking a bath. That works also. There's a lot of ways to consume podcasts. Uh, so what were? Let's just hit on some of those things, kind of strategy type stuff, real quick that you think wasn't covered by Josh and I. Okay, so one thing that I've talked about a decent amount. I think we've covered it a little bit on our baseball podcast. Is Figuring out what contests to play, not only in terms of cash versus GPP, because you and Josh did talk about that a good amount. I know we've talked about it with our members and subscribers a lot. So it's not just cash versus GPP, but it's also which GPP and cash contests to play in. And one thing I've been tracking a lot recently is how ownership is impacted by the dollar amount, the cost of the tournament. So I think this is going to matter a lot for basketball where there are nights where there are just very, very obvious value plays. We don't really get that a ton in baseball, but we do get it a ton in football, and that's where a lot of this sort of anecdotal research comes from. I've been tracking it for the last few weeks in football. When there's a pick that 
is a player who is filling in for a starter's injury and they're really cheap and it's obvious that they'll have a lot of touches if it's in football or just a lot of usage in any sport. It's just a very obvious pick where the player is dramatically underpriced. And what you'll notice is that in a tournament where the dollar entry is very low, the player's ownership is much more reasonable. So I'll pl on a given day, I'll play in a $0.25 cent tournament, a $1 tournament, $2, $4, $8, maybe all the way up even to the $33 ones. And a lot of that is just to be able to see the differences in ownership. And the difference between how much a player is being used in a $4 tournament compared to a $30 tournament is just, it's astronomical. So someone like Jarek McKinnon this week for football was owned, I think, close to 50% in a few of the higher dollar tournaments, and he was around 20% in the lower dollar ones. And with all of the basketball sites that are out there giving information, you'll see a lot of sites giving the same picks and a lot of projection systems giving the same picks. And they probably are the right value picks most of the time. I mean, if, let's say, LeBron James misses the first game of the season, then there's a whole bunch of Cavaliers players that become better value. So if you play in higher dollar tournaments, you'll see those players being used more. So one way that I'm always stressing is a way to create an advantage is to play more entries for cheaper as opposed to playing one entry for, exp for an expensive amount just because you're facing a lower quality of competitors when you're playing for lower dollar amounts. So yeah, I, I definitely I definitely agree with that. And then just uh, the way that I would kind of describe it is, like you said, if you only have $20 to spend on a given night, if that's what your bankroll allows, instead of doing one $20 entry, it always makes sense to do as many entries on in the lowest dollar entry possible. So it makes way more sense to do 10 $2 entries than it does to do one $20 entry. You could also kind of diversify a little bit that way because a lot of times there does happen to be multiple good value plays in basketball. So you could spread your exposure percentage around a little bit as opposed to getting in that situation where you only have one lineup for a GPP and you really are like stuck in between two guys that you think are kind of similar plays. Well, then you could, you could have uh, the one value play in half your lineups and the other value play in the other lineups. And there's a good chance that both of them are good plays on a given night. And you just have more exposure to good plays and also in softer tournaments, which is happens to be the case at lower dollars. Yeah, definitely. And then the last point on this, I think there's a bit of an illusion or just kind of a fallacy with how you should play when you're using a lot of different lineups in the same contest. And I think a lot of people will think, that be just because you have 20 lineups in the same contest, you have to diversify. And that's not really the case. I think that we both have had plenty of days in baseball and in every sport, but specifically in baseball where we'll have 20 lineups, but they'll consist of almost entirely the same players and just a few different tweaks here and there. Maybe out of the nine players on the roster, it's the same core of seven for each of the 20 lineups. And then we just mix up the last two spots. So I think it's important to note that just because you're using a lot of different lineups, they don't have to be that different. They can be almost the same, and that probably is going to benefit you in the long run just to be playing more lineups in the cheaper contest. So I do agree with that. Uh, and then with basketball, the other thing also is that I play a lot of cash games for basketball, and I play some GPPs also, whereas baseball, I'm only playing GPPs. So just kind of a general thing that just to point out how I like to play basketball. But then also, that does change a little bit from slate to slate. So uh, for opening night, we have a two-game slate. 
I won't play cash games on a two-game slate. I'll only play GPPs. In general, I won't even play at all on a two-game slate. But since it's opening night, I just think that I, I haven't played basketball for a long time. I want to play DFS basketball. And I, I do expect that there could be some overlay, particularly on DraftKings, which has an enormous tournament that only has 20 entry max. I think it's at a million-dollar prize pool with like 300-something plus thousand entries. So there's a pretty good chance that, that overlays for only $20. So whenever there's overlay, there's always an opportunity for value, even if the slate itself doesn't look great because there's overlay. It's free money. So in terms of making lineups to take advantage of the overlay, do you think there are going to be there's going to be a core of value plays that you're looking towards for this two game slate, or is it just make as bu- make a bunch of different combos and just expose yourself to the positive expected value where there's more money in the prize pool than in the entry pool and just win that way with a lot of different combinations and assume that you'll make more than you put in just because there is more money in the tournament than people are putting in? Or do you actually think that for this two-game slate, there might be enough value on its own where it could be justified to play even if there wasn't overlay? Yeah, well, there actually are value plays. So I guess we could just transition into the games a little bit now. So the injury news for tomorrow is we have Marcus Morris in the injury. He's already been ruled out. So the way that this impacts the Celtics is now Jason Tatum was expected to come off the bench. He's in the starting lineup. He's very cheap. Um, So the other thing also is that we're going to be using DraftKings pricing just as uh, a guideline for what we're going off on pricing. Generally, the pricing is about the same between the sites, but every once in a while, there is somebody who ends up being a stronger play on one site versus another. So just a heads up that we are going to be using just DraftKings pricing to go off on. Um, So Jason Tatum moves into the starting lineup. He is only 3,900 on DraftKings. And then Jalen Brown also is at, uh, what was Jalen Brown, 3,700. So this is a big bump for Brown and Tatum with Morris out. Both of them, we could expect a lot more minutes from them. I don't think that either one of them are going to have a massive role in the offense in terms of usage. But with that said, on a two-game slate, two guys priced under 4000 that are both going to be playing around 30 minutes or so, that's just a lot of – there's just value built into that price tag. You don't need to put up a ton of fantasy points per minute to be able to hit value at that kind of salary. So I think that that's a good spot to target is the Celtics wing, the Celtics cheap wings. And then the other one is – LeBron James right now is questionable to play with an ankle injury. I would be stunned if LeBron doesn't play on opening night. So the the Cavs today held practice, and LeBron only practiced in a limited amount. And then Tyron Lue said afterwards that he doesn't know if LeBron's going to play, and he's a legitimate game-time decision. I'm calling a little bit of bullshit on that. I think LeBron plays. LeBron always plays. He's a cyborg. He doesn't get injured. <laughs> if he does, he's like Wolverine. He just heals himself really quickly somehow. So I think LeBron should be fine for opening night, but I'll just put it in that should the unlikely event happen that he doesn't play, I think Dwayne Wade is going to have a ridiculously high usage rating for that game. So he would be in play, uh, become a really strong play. I mean, Derek Rose would be a bit of a stronger play. And then Kevin Love also I think would just be a monster play at 7,800. So those are the injury situations to look at. The Marcus Morris one obviously already confirmed. And then the LeBron one, still considered questionable. So that's that's where we're at. Well, I guess this would be, I think, a decent time to shift back into a little bit more of a general piece of strategy. Um, the line movement for the Cavs is sort of suggesting that LeBron will be playing. We talked a little bit about this before we started. 
that the Cavs are three-point favorites for the game, and I'm sure we'll get into this too, how it seems kind of ridiculous that the Cavs would be favored against the Celtics, who, at least in your opinion, and I think I'd probably agree with you, um, that the Celtics are a better team, but just based on this line movement for the game, the Cavs open at minus three, are up to minus three and a half. I think all we're seeing there is just the suggestion that LeBron is, his status is improving as far as the game time decision. But just to talk about the Vegas lines for basketball in general, because we do talk about the Vegas lines a decent amount for both football and we did for baseball. I don't think Vegas lines are as relevant for basketball just because it's not a sport where winning and losing really has much of a relationship to the player's statistics. Like in baseball, it has a pretty sizable impact, at least for the pitchers, because one of the ways that pitchers get points is they get wins. Uh, in football, the impact of point scoring has much more of an implication on fantasy stats than it does in basketball. In basketball, there are a lot of different ways to score fantasy points that actually have nothing to do with the score of the game. So I think we'll probably talk about Vegas lines a lot less for basketball than other sports. But there are some ways in which they're relevant, and this kind of gets at something that you and Josh had talked about on his podcast too, where you were using Vegas lines to figure out which games might ha- might be blowouts and where you can see different minutes amounts for top players because the Vegas line is a good indication usually of if a game will be a blowout and a star player might just end up playing less minutes because the game is out of hand and then it's garbage time and the second unit guys are in. So I do think the Vegas lines have a pretty good amount of value for that. But one distinction that I think is really important to mention that I mentioned to you before we started is using the total to figure out how high of a pace the game will have. And the distinction is that sometimes a game can have a high total just because the offenses are really good or a low total because the offenses are really bad. And then sometimes the total can be more impacted by the speed at which the teams play. So for example, two games could have two totals that are the same number, let's call it 200 points. One game, you're looking at a slow pace with very efficient offenses. The other game, you're looking at a high pace with very inefficient offenses. And the 200 total for the high pace, inefficient offense game is misleading because it it's, it's not as good of an indicator that there will be a lot of fantasy points scored. So the more important metric to look at is pace because you can still get rebounds and you can still get blocks, you can still get steals in a game where there aren't a lot of points being scored because more possessions creates more fantasy stats. So I think that's just important to note. And I think using the over-unders in basketball games as just the, as the sheer measure of how much fantasy production and how much pace there will be is just, it's, it's misguided by a lot of people. No, I agree with that. And then uh, just to reiterate what you're saying, definitely the most important part of the Vegas lines for me is just to look at it and determine, like, are there any games that have ridiculous blowout risk? Because if the Warriors are playing, I think the example I used was the Warriors playing at home against the Nets on Josh's podcast. Like, that could very well be a game that's a 25 to, like, 30-point spread this year. Like, something really ridiculous. Yeah. So, in a situation like that, I think you look at that and you just say, the Warriors players are not usable in cash games. There's way too much risk of them not seeing a full game. So, I think that's where the Vegas lines become super relevant for basketball is just figuring out where there's a game at high risk of being a blowout that you maybe don't want to play uh, somebody in a cash game where you just you want to raise the floor of your lineup and you don't care as much about the ceiling. Whereas for baseball, there's really not that much risk usually of blowouts, meaning the players are taking their the teams are taking their players out. If 
if the game is a seven-run game, teams are usually just leaving their players in for all nine innings. Yeah, unless it's uh, September let's... where we saw that becoming a big problem. Um, but just yeah. just to mention one more thing, the, the sharp action is still going to be a relevant thing to mention for a lot of games because you could see a game where the spread is 17 points for one team and you'd say, oh, that's a really high number, we'll probably see a blowout. But maybe in reality... The sharp money indicates that the spread is a few points too high. Maybe it should only be 12 or 13. And then you're seeing less blowout risk than everyone else is seeing. So it's still going to be important to note where the sharp money is. And maybe a game will be closer than some people think. Maybe it has more blowout potential than some people think. Maybe you have a game where there's a nine-point spread. But in reality, it should be a 13 or 14-point spread. And in those games, you could fade players, whereas other people will see the single-digit spread and then not think that it's a fade spot. So it will be important to see where the Sharps are at, just less important than it, than it is in other sports. So anything else you want to bring up, or do we just want to hit on all of these games for the opener? Yeah, let's um, let's move on to the specifics for each game. Okay, so I guess, I guess for this, instead of doing the position-by-position position breakdown, we can just do game-by-game game because it's only two games. So we'll start the Boston Celtics at the Cleveland Cavaliers. So here's the deal. I'm I'm not really high on the Cavs this year as a whole. Like this offense just makes very little sense to me. Kyrie's out obviously and incoming. We have Derrick Rose, we have Isaiah Thomas who's out with the hip injury for who knows how long right now. Uh, and Dwayne Wade is in. Dwayne Wade had a massive usage rating last year. So he's played with LeBron before. So I'm not really concerned about their chemistry together. I do think adding Derrick Rose into the mix makes it a little bit more confusing. The expected way for the Cavs' rotation to break down is it looks like Derrick Rose is going to play the first five to six minutes of the first quarter with the starting unit. Then he's going to come out, and then he's going to start the second quarter with the second unit, and he's going to lead them. So I I think that that kind of situation makes sense to use Derrick Rose as the cheap point guard on the slate at only Uh, $5,000. I just think that he is going to have a decent amount of usage on the second unit, the the Cavs don't have a very deep bench, so I prefer him a little bit to Wade just for that reason. And then from, I mean, LeBron obviously is going to make sense as a small forward play, uh, and then punt plays. I, I don't really think there's anybody cheap who I want to use from the Cavs for this game. It's also it's it's just so goofy talking about the two game slate because you could kind of justify everybody's being in, everybody being in play because there's only two games so there's only so many there's only so many people to roster from. My favorite high price play from the Cavs is Kevin Love though. So Love is seventy eight hundred on DraftKings. He is power forward and center eligibility. But if you look at what the starting lineup that the Celtics are expected to play with Horford at center and then uh, Tatum and Jalen Brown as kind of like power foe and Gordon Hayward is just like all on the wings. The positions are a little bit irrelevant. There's not a lot of rebounding there. The Celtics have been a very poor rebounding team for the last few seasons. And if this is their starting lineup, it's just going to be another poor rebounding team. Kevin Love is by far the best rebounder on the court in this game. And I think that he could just put up a huge rebounding game. So I think Kevin Love, Makes a ton of sense at 7,800. He's my favorite overall play at power forward or center. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about from the Cavs side of the game, Matt? I think we're seeing two teams where we probably are looking at them at their weakest early in the season, and they're both going to improve throughout the year from the Cavs side. 
Isaiah Thomas isn't playing yet, so that's that's a pretty obvious one. But for the Celtics, we were talking about this a little before too. It's harder for teams to play when there's a lot of new players that have never played together before. There actually is some statistical basis for them to take some while to mesh and actually form team chemistry, which I think we we are very quick to dismiss on most occasions. But in these particular circumstances where you have a lot of players from different places that are now coming together and aren't used to each other, it could be a little longer before they are clicking, so to speak. And it just it's, it is something to watch out for. So I guess even though the Cavs are at a disadvantage with without Isaiah Thomas, they're still favored in this game, probably in some part because the Celtics just won't be their full selves until they've figured out how to play together. I don't know, maybe it'll take a month or two, but the first game of the season, I guess, there's an advantage to Cleveland, even though, like you said, it's an offense that just doesn't make a lot of sense with a lot of ball-dominant players that just I don't think will ever really be able to fit together that well. Um, it just it might just say more about the Celtics and their potential problems early in the year. Yeah, and then uh, one other Cavs player, I don't think he has massive upside is Jay Crowder. But with that said, he's only 4,300 with small forward and power forward eligibility. And he's going to play 30-plus minutes probably every night for the for the Cavs, if not more. Like, we could even see him as being like a 35-minute-a-night uh, player. So just that kind of minutes at a cheap price, I think, has him in play. But uh, it's really just price-related because I don't think he's a massive amount of upside. So from the Celtics side of the game, we have the three stars on the team, Kyrie, Hayward, Al Horford. I think, for me, pretty clearly, Kyrie is the top play here. He's going to be going up against Derrick Rose for a lot of the game. Uh, he might be guarded by Wade at some point in time. Neither one of those guys are good defenders at this point in their career. Derrick Rose was never a good defender. Now he's just a really shit defender. Dwayne Wade used to be a decent defender, and now he's just older. He's broken down a little bit, so he's not nearly as effective on the defensive end of the floor. And the other thing, too, is that if you if you look at uh, – one thing that Josh and I talked about and kind of poo-pooed on on his podcast was narratives – but I do think that the Celtics are going to make a point that Kyrie is playing against the Cavs on opening night, obviously his former team. They didn't end on good terms. I think that there's definitely going to be a point to be made to feed Kyrie the ball early in this game. Would you buy into a narrative like that, Matt? Yeah, I would say that the narrative probably reduces the Celtics' chances to win the game. Anytime you're force-feeding the ball to one player, I think it automatically makes it harder to play a good team basketball game. And... Maybe that's part of the reason that I think we're seeing a little bit of sharp money going on the Cavs. Maybe the narrative is going to hurt the Celtics because they'll play in a, in a suboptimal way where they're giving Kyrie Irving more shots. But having said that, I do think it could increase his DFS upside because more usage means more fantasy points, or at least the potential for more fantasy points because he's taking more shots and should theoretically score more points. So I would buy into the narrative that Kyrie will probably take at least a few more shots just because it's a quote-unquote revenge game against his former team. So he's my favorite point guard to use in this game. Uh, I mean, he's my favorite point guard on the slate in terms of paying up. Um, I think that he's a bit of a stronger play than Chris Paul or uh, Steph Curry. Steph Curry's been playing really well in the preseason. I'm kind of mixing things here, but I'm just saying why I prefer Kyrie to Curry. Kyrie's a little bit cheaper, and Curry played really, really well in the preseason this year. But it's definitely a negative, him having to be guarded by Chris Paul tomorrow night. So so that has me leaning towards Kyrie over him. Uh, and then obviously we mentioned uh, Jason 
Tatum and Jalen Brown, they make a lot of sense as cheap plays. And then I think Marcus Smart makes some sense as a cheap play too. Point guard and shooting guard eligibility. And then in addition to that, I I think that Smart is going to play a ton of minutes off the bench this year. Uh, I think a lot of people look at him and say like, oh, he's coming off the bench, so less value, less minutes. I don't think that's the case. I think Smart's going to play a ton of minutes. Uh, I also think that he benefits a little bit from Marcus Morris being out because more small lineups for the Celtics. I think they're going to be playing a lot of uh, Marcus Smart at shooting guard, a lot of Marcus Smart at small forward. It's not just going to be him as the backup point guard. Actually, I actually think he's going to play more time off the ball than on the ball this year. So I think Marcus Smart makes a lot of sense. And then uh, I don't really think I'm going to roster Al Horford or Gordon Hayward a ton for this game. I think if I'm paying up at small forward, I'd rather just go to Durant or LeBron. And I think that Hayward kind of gets left out. And also that you could only use so many guys from one team. So if I really like Marcus Smart and Kyrie and Tatum and Brown, I can't also like Horford and Hayward also. So I think those four Celtics are kind of the core guys I like. Do you have anything else to bring up about the Celtics? Well, I guess if LeBron doesn't play, it makes Gordon Hayward a much more usable option. But I think the whole slate becomes pretty messy if LeBron's out. So I would just hope, well, maybe it is better if we have to deal with that because that could create some extra value opportunities that people aren't equipped to deal with. Uh, I don't know. It'll make it a worse basketball game if LeBron doesn't play, but we may actually have more of a money-making opportunity without him. So, yeah, I I think I agree with you. No Hayward unless LeBron sits. And uh, I think that's it on the Celtics. Although, quickly to mention on your Marcus Smart point, do you think that there's a bias towards guys in the starting lineups that's actually really pronounced where a guy on the bench that maybe plays more minutes as a start than the starter will still see lower ownership on a lot of occasions just because people are biased to use people that are in the starting lineup? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's, it seems like a big fallacy and a big problem where the starting lineup matters so much, but especially for a team like the Celtics, I think Brad Stevens has had a history of using bench players more than his starters in terms of minutes. A team like the Celtics, it's just it's not really that relevant who's starting. I mean, for for the most part, they're going to have their top players in the starting lineup, but I think there are a lot of teams where the bench players are actually getting more minutes and then they'll see lower ownership just because they're coming off the bench. So we will get into the Rockets Warriors game. Kind of a uh quick question where we start. So the Warriors are favored by nine and a half points in this game. Who do you think's a bigger favorite? The Warriors versus the Rockets as is, or the Celtics versus the Cavs if LeBron doesn't play? Hmm. I think it's still going to be the Warriors because LeBron has generally been worth... Vegas never moves... The... It's it's really tough to go purely based on how much Vegas moves the line for the top players because historically when LeBron is out or when someone like Steph Curry is out or Durant... More when Durant was on the Thunder because it's it's teams where one player is really having a major, major impact. When Durant's out on the Warriors, it matters a lot less than when Durant's on the Thunder because there were more players on the Warriors to pick up the slack for him. But I would say that LeBron moves the line probably five or six points on average when he goes from 100% playing to 0% playing. And I think that Vegas just moves the line a little bit less than they should because they don't like creating a giant middle ground where people can middle their two bets. So the people who had the Celtics plus three and a half, and then they can take the Cavaliers plus three and a half, there's a huge amount of risk for Vegas there because people can just profit by rooting for a close game, and that does tend to happen a decent amount of the time. So I think Vegas will undermove the line, if that's the right word, a lot. 
Uh, so maybe LeBron is worth seven points to the spread, but they only adjusted five or six. But even at a seven-point seven adjustment, the Celtics would only be three-and-a-half-point favorites, and the Warriors would be nine-and-a-half-point favorites. So the Warriors are the biggest favorite of the day, regardless of what happens with LeBron. Which is so ridiculous, because the Warriors are probably the best team in the— ba- well, the Warriors are definitely the best team in the NBA, and the Rockets are probably the second-best team in the NBA. So the gap between the number one and the number two team is bigger than the gap between the Celtics and Cavs, who are probably the third and fourth best teams, with the idea that uh, the Cavs would be missing their best player. Yeah, I guess home court advantage is what's keeping... Yeah, it it definitely... It definitely is helped a little bit by home court advantage, because the Celtics are playing on the road. Um, But I think there's also the fact that because the total for the Warriors game is higher, there's more potential for the Warriors to win by a lot more points, I guess, could create more of a margin. And the Warriors are just that much better than the Rockets because they're, I don't know, maybe argue, maybe they're the best team in NBA history. Is that a fair argument even before the season starts? Yeah, because I think they were last year, and they're only going to be better this year. Durant missed a portion of the, of the season with the knee injury, and they just have another year to play together. So, I mean, they're just going to be really good this year. So... I wouldn't. I wouldn't at all be surprised to see them win seventy plus games. I don't think that should be the expectation, just because they're going to be resting people at points in the year. But there's not going to be like if they're playing the Rockets and they're nine and a half point favorites. Like there's just not going to be games where they're ever favored by less than like seven or eight points or so, even on the road. Yeah, and I think that one potential way to take advantage of GPPs and especially so for this slate where mostly everyone will be using the same players is to play for a Warriors blowout. And even in this matchup against the second best team or what's probably the second best team in the NBA, I think there's still reasonable blowout potential here. The line opened at minus nine. It's moved up to nine and a half. So a little bit of a sharp indication. The spread bets are completely even actually. And there's more money line bets on the Rockets than there are on the Warriors. So the public actually might be a little bit biased towards rooting for a close game. Um, and that's kind of a rare thing. So I don't know. Do you think it's a viable strategy to play some Warriors backups and hope that they just win by a lot? Because I think the Warriors are capable of a 20 to 30 point win in any matchup, even against a team as good as this year's Rockets. So I did that a little bit last year and then I stopped doing it by the end of the year. And here's why. Even if the Rockets and I mean, even if the Warriors end up beating the Rockets by like thirty points, they're going to be bringing in some garbage time guys to play in the fourth quarter. But that's still only like eight to ten minutes played for those guys, so that's still not enough minutes to put up like a big fantasy game. Yeah, I guess on a two-game slate where you maybe want to go ultra contrarian because it's really hard to go ultra contrarian. Even the bench players on each of these four teams will probably have sizable ownership. I guess what you'd be playing for if you were doing that was a situation where the Warriors are up 30 or 40 points at halftime, which is probably incredibly unlikely, even though it's still possible, though. So uh, I guess it's very rare still, that, that... They would still play the starters in the third quarter, though. Yeah, probably, especially on opening night. So I guess maybe maybe that's a more viable strategy if it were a two-game slate in March and not in October. So from this side of the game, something to bring up really quick about the Warriors side of the game also is last year there was a positive correlation between Stephen Curry and Draymond Green, and then those two negatively correlated with Klay Thompson and Kevin Durant, and then Kevin uh, Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson positively correlated. So if you're looking at how to roster the Warriors side of the game, I think the Curry-Green combination would make sense, and then the Durant 
Thompson combination makes more sense as terms of GPP pairings. Do you think that Curry is more inclined to pass the ball to Draymond Green and vice versa, and then Durant and Thompson give the ball to each? Is that is that the reason, or is it just because of the way the Warriors stagger their minutes? Uh, it's hard to say. Maybe a little column A, a little column B. I think part of it also is because um, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson both score a lot of their points on the perimeter, uh, and then also Kevin Durant and Draymond Green are the Warriors' two best rebounders. So, just th- there's just there can't be a situation where Draymond Green and Kevin Durant both have a ton of rebounds in a game, and there also probably isn't a situation where uh, Stephen Curry and Klay Thompson become the go-to perimeter scorer in a single game. Like obviously Durant could score a lot on the perimeter also, but there's a little bit more overlap in the abilities of of Thompson and Curry. So as to why it was Curry and Green that positively correlated as opposed to Curry and Durant, I couldn't really say. But over the course of the season last year, that was just how their stat lines overlapped. I guess it could be maybe then maybe it just is a little bit of a fluke that it's one combination versus the other. But what is for sure is that Curry and Thompson are on one side. They negatively correlate and Green and Durant negatively correlate too. And yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure how this spectrum would play out if measured over another whole season because there could be a lot of noise here. But I guess what I'm saying is for GPPs, it doesn't seem to make sense to play Curry with Thompson and it doesn't seem to make sense to play Durant with Green, but any other pairing seems fine. Yeah, and then the other thing also is this does it, this does get skewed a little bit by a two-game slate just because like it makes a ton of sense to still stack this Rockets-Warriors game. And it, it's just... It, there's going to be times where you're going to get some of those other guys together anyway. Uh, but this was just kind of more of a general statement. And then also, like, I would assume that Chris Paul and James Harden are going to negatively correlate this year just because uh, they're both going to get a lot of their fantasy point production is going to come via assists. And obviously, if Chris Paul gets a lot of assists, that cuts into Harden's assists a little bit. If Harden gets a lot of assists, it's going to cut into Chris Paul a little bit. I would imagine, though, that Clint Capella is going to correlate very highly with both Harden and Paul this year. So I think at any point in time this year where you're rostering James Harden or Chris Paul, it's it's going to make a lot of sense to pair them with Clint Capella for GPPs. And I feel the same way about this slate, where Clint Capella is, I think, a really strong center play at 5,600. I think he benefits so much from Chris Paul being added to this team. He's going to score so many easy buckets this year in pick and rolls. So I like Clint Capella a lot from the Rockets. Just to quickly clarify, what you're saying is if you're using Capella, use one of Harden or Paul with him, but not both. And I guess this has to be in a general sense because lineup construction on a two-game slate is difficult. But for the most part this year, you think if you're playing in a tournament with Capella, use either Harden or Paul with him? Yeah. And then uh, also for this slate individually, Harden is my favorite expensive player to pay up for. So I prefer Harden to LeBron. I prefer Harden to Durant. And especially if you look at the price difference on Harden from FanDuel to DraftKings, on FanDuel, Harden's priced at 11000 and he's the most expensive player by a pretty wide margin. And then on DraftKings, he's all the way down at 10000 and LeBron is actually more expensive than him at 10200 So I really like Harden as a play at 10000 on DraftKings, and I think that he's a little bit better of a play than Chris Paul. And I think that uh, Capella makes a lot of sense from that side also. And then there's nobody else who I think is a really strong play from the Rockets side of the game. Uh, Definitely 
the cheap guys on the Celtics is the way I'm going to be going. Paying up for Harden a lot, um, Kevin Love a lot. Is there anything else you want to bring up from the Warriors-Rockets game? I guess I'll, I'll mention the movement on the total a bit. So this line opened at 232 points, which is just an obscene number, but I guess it's justified for teams that play at this pace and are this good offensively. But the total has dropped a bit. And normally I would say there is an indication here that the sharp money is on the under, which I think it is. But it's just not relevant because I think there may also be some sharp money on the under in the other game, the Celtics-Cavs game. And you only have two games to choose from, so... In the game where the total is 18 points higher, that certainly seems like where you want to take your core players from. And then, yeah, just the better value plays are in that Celtics-Cavs game, especially from the Celtics side. So I'm fully on board with the strategy of using the best players on the Rockets and Warriors and then value plays from the Celtics and Cavs and then Kevin Love in the positive matchup with potential good rebounding ability. That makes sense too, but... It, it seems almost too obvious that the top-scoring players will almost all come from the Rockets-Warriors game. Uh, yeah, probably. Unless, uh, I mean, LeBron also obviously has the potential, if he plays, to be the top scorer. Uh, I, I just think Harden makes a little bit more sense. And then also because I think there's just more value to be had at the, at the forward positions between... Uh, Crowder, Tatum, and Jalen Brown, and it's a little bit harder to fill the guard positions. So that also has me a little bit more inclined to play James Harden. So that'll wrap up the podcast for the opening night. Uh, even though this is only a two-game slate, we will be probably a little bit shorter for some of the more main slates where we don't really talk as much strategy and just kind of go over some of the plays we like for the slate. But you can follow me on Twitter at GArenbergDFS. Matt's Twitter handle is at PreachingSense. And then we have a regular full slate for Wednesday that we'll be back with tomorrow.